This is Ken Patton with Only This, a series of eclectic podcasts about real stuff, information, stories, guides, etc., that are accurate, factual, and logical. No bullshit, propaganda, lies, conspiracy theories, religious fairy tales, or other nonsense. I might slip in some fiction once in a while, but if I do, it will be clearly labeled as such. These podcasts were driven by my desire to share a lifetime of experiences and acquired knowledge in technology, music, the sciences, and life itself, and to combat the pandemic of misinformation and bullshit the world is currently suffering, because everybody's blowing smoke up your ass. So wake up. Episode 11, How I Made It in L.A. It was the mid-1970s, and my career had reached a dead end in Fresno, California. I had been laid off my $2 an hour farm equipment factory job, and was getting about $30 a week on unemployment. Los Angeles and San Francisco were the two closest big cities. But L.A. got the nod because it was the center of the music industry, and I was a music school dropout and wannabe composer, and it was the world headquarters of Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship, SRF whose yoga lessons I had subscribed to to cure some anxiety attacks I was suffering. So I decided to pack up the family and possessions and move to L.A. I had a new wife and baby, and I just rented a U-Haul trailer, packed it with my worldly belongings, hitched it up to my 1960s Dodge Polara 382 four-barrel carburetor, V8 ex-narco agent car and headed south down I-5. Actually, we had to travel down Highway 99 for a bit through Tulare and Bakersfield and those San Joaquin Valley towns before we reached uh, Interstate 5. In a few miles, we reached the Grapevine and started the ascent up towards Cajon Pass. Just a little while after starting the climb, the car began to sputter and quickly died. Apparently, I hadn't accounted for the extra fuel consumption caused by the weight of a loaded trailer. You can't imagine what it was like sitting in the dark and cold on the side of a mountain with sunrise. I mean, I had a wife and a young baby, and this was just not a good situation. Eventually, a highway patrol cruiser stopped behind us and lit us up. He walked up, and I rolled down the window, explained the situation. He called the tow truck. My wife, baby, and I rode to the station inside the tow truck, and back to get a couple gallons of gas for $50 in 1970s money. That was out of my total savings of $200. That was a big hit, but we got to L.A. 
The only place we could afford was a room in a fleabag hotel across from MacArthur Park called the Hotel California. It was full of junkies, pervs, and weirdos, but at least it was something. Looking through the LA Times, I found a job as a security guard protecting the patients at Dr. Campbell's credit debtors from the people who made false teeth, who were on strike and picketing on Broadway in the middle of Skid Row. After expenses, I had about $5 a week for discretionary spending. The job site was a total freak show. It was in an old high-rise in a sleazy section of downtown with homeless, junkies, alkies, perverts, schizos, psychos, and other bizarre characters meandering everywhere. It was hot and smelled like piss. Poor and usually elderly patients would shuffle up to the front door and I would open it and let them in. If there was a confrontation, I would have to use only my wits to de-escalate the situation as I was unarmed. My supervisor told me if he gave me a nightstick and I got into a fight with some Asian guy, he'd probably just take it from me and beat me to death with it. Most of the time, things were uneventful, since we're all mostly bored. They just walked in a circle and I just opened the door. There were a few times of camaraderie, however, like the time we watched a drunken old homeless woman meander along the sidewalk across the street. It was a typical L.A. day with warm and bright sunshine and the typical skid row stench, of course. She walked hesitantly with fits and starts, with our eyes constantly on her until she finally stopped by the pale granite facade of a bank building, dropped her drawers, and took a huge shit. The strikers and I immediately erupted into uncontrolled laughter. It was the most entertaining event of my entire time there. It lowered the natural tensions between the strikers and me, and after that, work wasn't as bad. One day I was late for work and tripped and fell, ah! rushing off the bus. I tore the knee of my guard uniform pants. So there went my discretionary $5 for that week. Life was hard, but not as hard as it was for some of the residents of the hotel. There was a 20 or maybe even 30-something blonde woman across the hall from us. She uh, said she was a sound engineer. As a musician, this sparked some conversation between us, and we became casual friends. Shortly thereafter, we heard that her ex-boyfriend had broken into her room and raped her with candlesticks. The odd part of the story is they got back together after that. Apparently, she liked it. Besides the homeless woman who took a shit on the bank, there were other characters to make fun of. It became kind of a pastime for us, 
especially some of the strikers. One day, a scruffy old drunk came shuffling through the crowd of marching strikers, and one of them made uh, some kind of disparaging remark about him. He suddenly stopped and whipped out a knife with, from his tattered coat and started flashing this gleaming steel blade at the striker while making some sharp jabbing motions at him. I immediately ran inside and told the receptionist to call the cops. She froze in surprise, so I repeated my demand. I finally saw her start dialing, so I went back outside to see what was happening. The old assailant had disappeared, and his victim was standing there, being comforted by one of his comrades, visibly shaken to the core. I mean, he he was terrified. We didn't mock the uh, passing uh, homeless guys uh, that much anymore after that. I had been there about two weeks when my boss called me into the office. I couldn't imagine what it was about. When I walked in, he acted quite pleased to see me, and in a very gregarious manner. He said I was the only guard he sent to that job site that lasted more than a day, and everyone in the company was very happy with me. So they were promoting me to a premium post. Prudential Insurance Company's Western Home Office out on the Miracle Mile of Willowshire Boulevard. And they were giving me a raise, too, from minimum wage to slightly above minimum wage. To get to work, I walked down Vermont Avenue to Wilshire Boulevard and then took the express bus towards the beach. The Wilshire bus was always packed, standing room only. Sometimes they were so full they wouldn't even stop, and people would shake their fists and swear at them and give them their finger as they whizzed by. My schedule coincided with a particularly surly old curmudgeon of a bus driver who was the rudest person I have ever met. He obviously hated his job and took it out on the passengers. One day a shy young man got on and held out his hand silently for a transfer. For almost 10, 15 seconds or so, time stopped. Then the young man finally said, May I have a transfer? To which the bus driver replied in an exaggeratedly sarcastic tone, Oh, look, it talks. What an asshole. The bus dropped me off at the Prudential Building, which was a 10-story Art Deco structure across the street from La Brea Tar Pits. It was the tallest building in L.A. at the time it was built because of earthquake-influenced building codes. I reported to the post captain, who was sitting in a dimly lit room with a couple other guards behind him. There was this two-way mirror around the front that looked over to the, into the lobby, and the wall was full of TV monitors. 
The captain was a jovial middle-aged guy wearing a bright white uniform shirt with silver railroad tracks on the collar, signifying he was a captain. He filled me in on the daily routine, stand outside and check the badges of people entering the building, then come back in the guardroom and watch TV monitors after the morning rush. Pictures of the top Prudential executives were hanging on the wall so we could recognize them on site and avoid the embarrassment of asking them to show their badges. The captain had a keen eye for bureaucratic nonsense, which meant he only did what was important and let the rest of the procedure slide. He also had a peculiar obsession with the word ostensibly, which he used frequently. Jim was ostensibly coming in today. Aside from the odd wannabe Nazi, everybody else was pretty normal. So life at work wasn't uh, all that bad. After a while on the day shift, they assigned me to graveyard with another guy. He was young like me and showed me how to do the rounds. That involved walking a set route around the building and checking for anomalies, like unlocked doors and such. It was a boring routine, but it was easy. The only issue was a mysterious pile of crumbs that would occasionally appear on the senior vice president's desk some mornings. And the SVP here was the top guy in the, in the building. So th this was kind of a big deal. I didn't know anything about it, but it, it baffled the captain. One night, my partner was late coming back from his turn at rounds. He'd been late before, like a lot, but this time it was hours. So I decided I should leave the guard post and uh, go looking for him. Having connected a few dots in my head, the first place I went to look was the SVP's office. As I opened the door to the room, I heard this scuffling sound under this gleaming polished oak desk. I was pretty freaked. Nonetheless, I slowly peered around the side, and there was the guard lying there on the floor in just his underwear, looking up at me with his eyes wide open. Well, this finally solved the mystery of the crumbs on the desk and ended my partner's career as in the security guard business. During my time there, I made a few casual friends with some of the Prudential workers, one of whom came in early at the end of my graveyard shift. He was this hippie-ish looking young guy who actually managed HR. He told me they were hiring and that, uh, you know, maybe I should apply and take their aptitude test. So I did. Seemed pretty basic, conversational English, high school math problems and such. He came to see me shortly thereafter, 
and said I got all the math questions right, and they wanted to hire me right away as a rate calculation clerk, working with the underwriters in the group insurance department. Needless to say, this was a major opportunity for a security guard and former taxi driver, which included insurance for my family and me, so obviously I accepted. After the corporate orientation, I was introduced to the group insurance department manager, Doug, a short white guy with a curly brown afro and uh, Napoleonic personality. Then I was introduced to my direct boss, the supervisor of rate calc. He was a shy little introverted guy with a nervous demeanor and a meek smile. The rest of the group were a neglected bunch of ordinary characters who eyed me suspiciously. The job was pretty straightforward. We acted like human calculators for the group insurance rates. Each type of insurance, life, major medical, basic medical, AD&D, and long-term disability, the rates could be calculated with three pieces of information, that's all, about each employee. Age, gender, and salary. You'd enter the number in the appropriate boxes on uh, the form, add columns of numbers, multiply by some factor, divide by that, and eventually arrive at the base insurance rate for the group. Then we'd pass the form to a co-worker who would repeat the entire process and put little dots next to the check numbers. Then it would go to the underwriters who would treat tweak the rate based on experience and uh, type of industry and other arcane factors to arrive at the final rate for the group. The process was tedious and pretty error prone. One day our supervisor didn't show up for work. He didn't call in sick either. He just didn't show up the next day or for several days after that. It was a real mystery. About a week later, they found him down in Skid Row, near Dr. Campbell's credit dentist, I wondered, wandering incoherently. He never came back to work, and that was the last we ever heard of him. We got a new supervisor shortly after that, a young blonde woman, fresh out of college, a real 90-day wonder with an air of superiority over us mere clerks. I made friends with one of the actuaries because we both smoked weed. He turned me on to a book called Learn Basic Fast. There was already a couple of computer terminals for calculating life insurance rates for large companies like Hughes Aircraft. My actuary friend wrote a simple program to add up the numbers and produce the basic rate. I spent every spare moment practicing programming and enhancing his life insurance program. I made it print out the results just like the manual form. So you just had to copy the numbers from the computer printout 
and the machine did all the work. Programming my job had a snowball effect. The more rate types I could do on the computer, the more free time I had and the more programming I could do. I went crazy programming everything. I even wrote a game, a space shooter called Star, which was eventually discovered by the systems department because all my coworkers started playing it and sucking up all the uh, CPU cycles on, uh, on the uh, machine. There were detractors though. People, I, I don't know why, they were jealous of all the attention I was getting, but most of my coworkers liked it because uh, the programs I was writing was freeing, were freeing up their time too, and my boss loved it. My supervisor was the worst. She was a constant nuisance trying to get me to do things conventionally with the forms and stuff. But I achieved rapid success and notoriety by writing new rate calculation programs. So her interference was pretty ineffective overall. This was obviously a major improvement in the, the process and, and no one could deny it. My living situation also improved. We moved out of the sleazy hotels and into a cheap two-bedroom garden apartment off of uh, Western Avenue. It was managed by a couple of gay guys. One of them was this particularly flamboyant character named Paul, who we'd see a lot. He, he was a nice guy. Uh, there was the occasional rash of car fires and condoms on the sidewalk and uh, stabbing here and there. But it, it was really an oasis in the middle of uh, low-class Hollywood. At work, I kept getting promotions, three in one year. The systems department requested a transfer for me twice but my boss refused, admitting later that if he lost me to another department, it was the same thing as losing me to another company in his mind. I was appointed systems liaison. Prudential headquarters adopted my rate calculation programs as the official group insurance rate calculation system and distributed them to the home offices worldwide. I really felt I had found my niche in life. Despite trying all angles, my great-grandboss, Doug, still wouldn't let me go to the systems department. I told my supervisor I wasn't going to stick around if I couldn't pursue my dreams and my goal of becoming a software developer. She laughed at me, and I distinctly recall her saying, you think you can just walk into a programmer job? I had shown talent, but, you know, I was still just a music school dropout and taxi driver. Yet I was determined. I loved coding, and I knew it was what I wanted to do. I, it didn't even feel like work, so I started looking around. It didn't take me long to get an interview and a 
job offer as a junior programmer. Having automated the entire rate calculation process at a big insurance company was enough qualifications. And because I was used to a clerk's low wages, they got me at a huge bargain. After that, I was in the groove. I doubled my salary every year for about three or four years straight and got several promotions. Over a 45-year career, I worked as a programmer analyst, systems analyst, network engineer, systems engineer, support engineer, security engineer, professional services consultant, technical assistance center manager, senior architect, and other positions at companies large and small, including some huge multinational corporations. I never burned out in coding like some people said I would. And I still code in retirement. Not bad for music school dropout, eh? The past is gone. The future hasn't arrived. Your hopes and fears are phantoms. There is no heaven above, no hell below, no supernatural realms. There is... Only this.